It's question show time. Your questions, my answers, as always, wherever you are on my channel, question pops in your brain. I will gather it up and I will answer it here. I've seen a bunch of people trying to test me. They've been going back to the earliest questions on my entire channel, posting a question. Yes, I saw them. I saw them within minutes. I see everything. Actually, what I don't see is when you reply to me replying to you. So YouTube is really good at letting me know when, when there's like an initial question, but they're terrible at telling me if there's a reply to one of my replies. So if I don't get back to you after I answer you and you answer back to me, that's what's going on. All right, let's get into it. Pump up the volume. Okay, put any pet in the frame. If you have to buy some and use them in the thumbnail, you'll get so many views. <laughs> All right, well, here you go. This is Ona, this is our uh, Bull Terrier. She's completely deaf, born deaf, and she's a rescue. Um, we're not exactly sure how old she is. She came from the streets of Oakland, actually. She was living on her own. Uh, she had babies, we think, but, um, but yeah, she's a great dog. It's very strange having a deaf dog, uh, but she does bark. So um, we're, gonna put a, <laughs> we're gonna put a picture <laughs> on the, uh, uh, on the thumbnail of her on a recent hike that we did. But uh, yeah, so there you go. This is it. I, I'm trusting you that this is what's going to make uh, my channel go viral. So there you go. Dog in frame and on my thumbnail. Here's to a million views on this video. Thanks, Ona. Halil Zelenka. To what extent has the desire to get a leg up militarily motivated aerospace research, including space exploration? Does this continue and does it pose a threat to human species? How do we mature as a species and outgrow the stage of development with its wars and ecological degradation? Can we rely on technological fixes or are fundamental social and political changes necessary for humanity to truly conquer the solar system? I know I say great question, but that's a great question. And the answer of course is that we don't know. Um, humanity has never, gone through a stage of its evolution, of its society, where it has had the ability to essentially wipe out all humanity in so many different ways. I mean, we have more than enough nuclear weapons to cause a nuclear winter. Um, we have various uh, bioweapons potentially, artificial intelligence, as well as just environmental degradation. So there's a lot of things that we're proceeding with, uh, which uh, can cause tremendous damage to humanity and at the same time give us all of these wonders of modern society, cell phones, internet, uh, rocketry, various technologies. And, and the thing is, is that even if we get to space and create a solar system spanning civilization, that doesn't take away our ability to existentially destroy ourselves and each other, right? Now you've got someone could go and put rockets on an asteroid and have it smash into the planet of their choosing and cause tremendous damage. So I don't think that getting off the planet is going to be the solution to humanity's tendency to harm itself and each other. And I think that we need to get that under control. And I think the, the path to that is helping more people have a higher standard of living, right? When we are poor, um, uh, then we have less choices, we have less options, but when we have more wealth, we have sort of more uh, things that we can do, more ways that we can try to protect ourselves, more ways that we can make choices which um, can cause a lower environmental impact. So 
So I, I don't sort of believe in space as the way to avoid some kind of existential threat. I think we will discover new existential threats as we move out to space. And the reality is that we just need to to get it together here on Earth or out in space at some point. We need to get it together, we need to figure it out and not destroy ourselves. And that's the only way that we will be able to survive in the long term, otherwise we won't. I did a whole interview all about existential threats and, and extinction events and things like that. So it was pretty fascinating. If you want, I'll put a link right here and the little cards and in the show notes and you should check that out. Tim Robinson. What are the sparks that you see fired under the main engines of the space shuttle when it launches? Yeah, when you see the space shuttle launch, you see these spray of sparks go underneath and then the rocket ignites and then it takes off. And so what that is, is those sparks are there to burn off hydrogen. So the space shuttle and any hydrogen fueled rocket, I don't know if there's any others than the space shuttle, hydrogen and oxygen, but um, so the, they let the hydrogen out first and so the hydrogen goes out, but they want to make sure that it doesn't explosively burn before they're ready to mix in the oxygen. So they throw out the sparks, uh, that burns off any excess hydrogen, and then they fully ignite the rocket, and then it takes off. Ophir Mater. Hey Fraser, great show. A question I've wondered for a while. How do they know how big a planet is while using the radial velocity method? Surely this would only indicate mass, not size. Any thoughts? You're absolutely right. The radial velocity method and the transit method and the direct imaging method are three different ways to get at some of the aspects of a planet. So when astronomers are using the transit method, this is where they watch how the light dims as a planet passes in front of the star, that tells you the orbital time of the planet and it tells you roughly the size of the planet because you see how much it dims. But it doesn't tell you the mass of the planet. So you could know that the, uh, you know, the planet could be one size but be made of water or it could be the same size but be made of rock and have two completely different masses. And so astronomers use the radial velocity method where they measure how the gravity of the planet changes the position of the star. It kind of yanks the star back and forth with its gravity. And that tells you the mass of the planet. And so for the best observations, to, f to truly find that other Earth, the Earth-sized world orbiting a sun-like star with roughly the mass of the Earth in the habitable zone of the star, they're going to need to have both a radial velocity method and a transit measurement of that same planet to find out the mass and the size Everything else is just estimates. So they, you know, if they use the transit method to see a planet, they guess at what they think the mass probably is. And then when they use the radial velocity method, they guess at what the size is. Um, but it's those two different observations together. And as we get more instruments in space, more things that we'll be doing observing, uh, we'll get these, we'll get situations where planets have been observed by many different ways, and they'll know every different aspect of it. Nicole Sathar. Question. Whenever the sun starts expanding in the future, then it is possible to push our Earth outwards through rockets pushing down on the ground a little by little. That was the plot of the Wandering Earth movie though on Netflix. It was a Chinese movie um, where they, uh, for some reason, the sun is getting bad and they need to escape the solar system. And so they put a bunch of big rockets, big fusion rockets, and they push the Earth on some trajectory that takes it away from the solar system. Um, and 
there won't be anything urgent that will need us to move the earth, but the sun is slowly heating up bit by bit. And over time, over the next say 500 million to a billion years, the earth will heat up to the point that all of our, it will dry up, all our oceans will evaporate, the solar wind will break up the water in the atmosphere and get rid of the hydrogen, and earth will become dry like Venus. So, uh, although it's going to be, say, four and a half, five billion years until the sun actually expands to the point that it like cooks the earth, actually, we've really only got about a half billion to a billion years of, of this, of life, right? Before the sun uh, gets too hot. So how do you move the earth? Um, I don't think rockets are going to be the way, um, but one idea that's very elegant, I really like it, is that what you do is you have an asteroid that flies on a trajectory between the earth and Jupiter. So it just flies back and forth on some weird convoluted orbit that it does it once every 10 thousand years. And what it does is it does a gravitational slingshot. So it does a gravitational slingshot past Jupiter, gets sped up a little bit, essentially steals some of Jupiter's orbital momentum, and then falls down into by Earth and does a slingshot of Earth and speeds up Earth a little bit. And then it slingshots back out to Jupiter and steals a little bit more of Jupiter's momentum and then falls back down to Earth. And as long as you do one of these passes every 10,000 years with a medium-sized asteroid, you would slowly raise Earth's orbit at the same rate that the sun is heating up and causing us to cook. So in the far, far future, actually, we should have a way to be able to deal with this, which is a, a mind-bending idea. And it doesn't sound that complicated. You just got to get the math right, because get the math wrong and your asteroid smashes into the Earth. Couch Ninja. It's a shame that we have to make so many different telescopes instead of pooling all the money in top engineers and making one 100-meter telescope. I think if you asked astronomers, would you like hundreds of smaller telescopes of varying sizes or one the biggest possible telescope, they would take the smaller telescopes, right? The part of the problem is, is that with that gigantic telescope, it can answer questions that are beyond the capability of the current instruments, but it would be fully subscribed all the time. There would be a lineup around the block of astronomers wanting to use it. And what typically happens with telescopes and observatories is astronomers will use the smaller observatories to find interesting things. And a great example is, say, TESS, right? The TESS mission, its job is to find planets. So just watch all these stars around us, find a dimming of one of those stars, telling you that there's a planet orbiting that star, and then pass along that information to another telescope to do a follow-on observation. And then other larger telescopes will do follow-on observations, and the really interesting ones will be handed off to James Webb and the monster telescopes to do the big detailed observations that require the biggest telescopes. So it's, it's like this pyramid. And so you need to have telescopes at all the different levels so that astronomers can always have access to the size of science instrument that they could use. You could build 10 more Hubble Space Telescopes right now, and it would still be, they would all be fully used all the time by astronomers. And in, if you gave them a vote, they would probably pick 10 Hubbles over one James Webb, except for the people who really need James Webb to answer the questions that they're looking for. So that's, uh, that's how it works. Claire Hill. 
Great questions in this one. Here's mine. If the universe is expanding, then won't what we see in our observable universe be less? Yeah, that's the irony of this whole situation is that over time, the universe is expanding and various galaxies and galaxy clusters are getting are going faster and faster and they're getting farther and farther away from us. And over time, they'll eventually get so far away and their light will just get redshifted to the point that we can no longer observe them. So in the far future, like trillions of years from now, um, we will only be able to see the galaxies that are gravitationally bound to the Milky Way. So Andromeda and M33 and the Milky Way and a bunch of dwarf galaxies and maybe some other galaxies. And that's all we'll see. And there will be no other galaxies in the sky because they've all moved away and they've essentially fallen over the cosmic horizon. And it'll be really strange for astronomers in the far, far future to know that they are in a universe that had a finite starting point. It'll be a lot tougher because everything will look static. It'll look as if it had always been. And uh, so it, we're kind of lucky that we're at a time when we can see essentially the observable universe and that is right after the Big Bang. So. We're fortunate. Mr. Eric Chima. Hey Fraser, do you believe that we will have any extraterrestrial colonies in your lifetime? So do I think that there will be people living on other worlds or out in space and like that's their home and that'll happen in my lifetime? And I don't think so. I mean, one, I'm an old man, you know, and I, my robot body hasn't shown up yet. So, you know, maybe I've got another 45 years. Uh, left on this planet if I'm lucky, uh, if I keep exercising well. Um, but I think that we're going to see research stations in the same way that we have Antarctica, right? Like we have had people going and living at Antarctica and doing work there for decades, for a long time. And people could live in Antarctica if they wanted to, but nobody wants to because it's a really hard place to live. Mars, the moon, space itself, until our technology grows, they're going to be much worse than Antarctica. So I don't think there's going to be a lot of people. I think there's a lot of people who think that they want to move to Mars. I'm looking at you, uh, Cody, but, um, but for, I think for everybody else, it's like, it's just going to be too much of a challenge to live in one of these worlds. There'll be people who will try and many will die. Um, but I think that the stable situation will be researched. There'll be a, a permanently uh, crewed base on the moon. There will be various space stations doing work. And that sort of in my lifetime. But then I think about the far, far future as we get more infrastructure in space and we start to get these large rotating space colonies and you've got manufacturing facilities and you've got plants that are, you know, farms that are growing in orbit and you've got space-based power and we've solved a lot of those hassles, then suddenly living out in space makes a ton of sense. And eventually there will be more people living in space than live here on Earth. There will be trillions of people living across the solar system directly accessing the sun, creating the exact kind of environment that they want to. So I think I was born too early um, for that future, um, but I think that, that that's what's going to happen in the far future. So if you said like, if I, you know, like 200 years from now, I think we will have a much more established presence in space. But in my lifetime, I think we will just have sort of a version of the International Space Station, but on the moon and maybe some people on Mars, and that's about it. Drunk Red Ninja. 
Is it feasible to suppose that if extraterrestrial life exists outside of our real-time detection range, that it exists now, but not within the scope of our look-back time? I'm not sure I understand the question, but it's sort of like tickling things on the, uh, you know, in my brain. Um, so this idea, right, that, that as we look out into space, we look backwards in time. And so when we look to the edge of the Milky Way, say, or we look to the core of the Milky Way, it's about, say, 27,000 light years away, and it's about the same amount to look out to the edge. And so when we see what's happening on the supermassive black hole at the heart of the Milky Way, we're really seeing what it did 27,000 years ago, same thing on the outer edge. And so as we look out into space around us, we're seeing backwards in time. And so if we detected alien civilizations, we would be seeing them backwards in time. And so it's possible to think that there could be alien civilizations that are fully advanced right now, but because we're seeing them a long time ago, we're not seeing them as they are today. It's imagine, you know, there were aliens 65 million light years away from us and they were looking at Earth and they would be seeing the dinosaurs and they wouldn't think that there was an advanced civilization here. But that said, the Milky Way is like 130,000 light years across and the universe is 14 billion years old. So that's many orders of magnitude longer. Uh, so you could look out to the edge of the Milky Way and out beyond to many nearby galaxies and see them roughly as they're happening now. So yeah, absolutely. If we saw like 10 million light years away, we saw some galaxy where you could clearly see that globular clusters had been rearranged into this really bizarre shape inside the galaxy, we would say, okay, an alien civilization did that 10 million years ago. Who knows if they're still around today? So that's how I sort of think about that. Estevan Kandel. So what about planets with even longer orbital periods, including periods longer than our lifespan, such as Neptune's 165-year orbital period? Will we never be able to confirm their existence using tests? I mean, it would take three years for a planet like Earth. Would it really take 495 for a planet like Neptune? Yeah. Yeah, it would, right? So um, when you think about this, that if you want to make an observation, say Neptune passes in a Neptune type world, the same distance as Neptune passes in front of the star, uh, you see one drop in the brightness of the star, and then you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait and you never see it again. And that's because it needed to take more than 100 years to go around the star. And so we will never be able to confirm them unless we test or just anything. I mean, it's not just test that's going to be doing the confirmations, right? It's going to be ground-based observatories as well. Anytime there's any event, any transit event, the astronomers publicize it and make it available to the astronomical community. And anybody who wants to do follow-on observations of any star can do so hoping to see another transit of the star at some point down the road. But there will be planets that we will never be able to see using the transit method or using the radial velocity method. But with direct observation, suddenly a planet like Neptune becomes visible, right? You've got a really powerful telescope, you observe the star, use a coronagraph to block out the star, and now suddenly you can see the planets in orbit around that star, and they can be really far away. So there will be other techniques to spot planets around other stars. It's just that the transit method is so possible right now with the kind of technology that we have today. I mean, TESS's instruments are actually very small, right? Very small telescopes, very small CCDs, 
it's amazing how, how uh, detectable planets are using that technique. Sean Mannion. Just wondering, Fraser, if you can answer what would happen if two magnetars collided, and what would the process of it happening differ from more common neutron stars colliding? Well, you got the answer there, right? Is that um, magnetars are essentially just neutron stars with much more powerful magnetic fields. And astronomers are still trying to figure out why. Um, you know, it looks like neutron stars, when they first start out, right, just after they explode as a supernova, they're spinning really rapidly, they're pulsars, and then they slow down over time and go through other phases. And um, so, but they're all at the end of the day, just neutron stars, stars with several times the mass of the sun, which um, are, you know, they've mashed most of their protons and electrons together to create neutrons, and they're incredibly dense. And they're the stage before a black hole. And so, when you get two neutron stars colliding together, you get this kilonova, this blast of material, gold, things like that. And then you also get potentially a black hole as the remnant, as the two neutron stars come together. So you would expect that two magnetars coming together would do the same thing. Now they might be doing it in a really wacky, crazy magnetic environment, but at the end of the day, they're going to smash together, turn into the black hole, explode, blast out their heavier elements and, and be gone. So I, I think that the, the last few seconds before they came together, they would have a different environment. And maybe in the explosion, you could see different, um, different energies involved, different material being ejected in different ways. But, uh, but at the end of the day, it's going to be roughly the same as any two neutron stars coming together. Marcus Coleman just popped into my brain when thinking about the microwave background radiation. If we look back in time far enough, we can see the CMB. But what will the CMB look like in another, say, 10 billion years? Sure, the wavelength will continue to increase, but doesn't that mean that there must be an infinite source of photons or will it vanish? Right, so as so the CMB, the cosmic microwave background, this is the this is the, the time when the early universe had finally cooled down to the point that it became transparent to light. And so you think about it like the whole universe was sort of the temperature of a red dwarf star, you know, a few thousand Kelvin. And at that moment, the universe became transparent and light was able to escape and it started moving through the universe. And over time, as our observable universe grows, we are seeing a little more of a, a, a more distant spot of the cosmic microwave background of that moment, right? So we're seeing the same moment, we're just seeing it a year, a light year farther, and then a light year farther, and then a light year farther every year that goes on. So we're always seeing that moment, it's just that that moment is moving or it's, it's happening at a different place. And what's happening is over time, as the universe is expanding and the wavelengths of the photons are stretching out, they're shifting from that initial dull red through infrared into the microwave. And that's going to continue. They'll move into the radio waves and the radio waves will get longer and longer. And eventually the radio waves will be so long that we can't detect them. And so earlier on in this episode, I talked about this idea that the galaxies are going to fall over the cosmic horizon and eventually the cosmic microwave background will fall over the cosmic horizon. Those photons will still be there. You're exactly right. There's an infinite number of them. And every year that goes by, we hit another light years worth of them, but they will be so stretched out that they will be essentially 
undetectable. And that's what the future holds for observations. And that's why, again, it's quite amazing that we live in a time when we actually can think about the beginning of the universe. All right. Uh, those were all the questions that we had this week. Uh, thank you so much. As always, uh, wherever you are across my channel, if a question pops in your brain, uh, write it down. I'll gather them all up and I will answer them here. See you next week.